Greetings, rabble rousers. My name is Jessa McLean. Welcome to Blueprints for Disruption, a weekly discussion dedicated to amplifying activism across Turtle Island. Together, we will examine tactics, explore motivations, and celebrate successes in disrupting the status quo. This podcast is a proud part of New Left Media. So I'm sure we've all noticed how much the cost of everything in our lives has gone up, including our groceries, our food. Prior to this surge in inflation, the rates of food insecurity in Canada were shocking. 5.8 million people in Canada are experiencing food insecurity. That's almost 16% of households. And these rates are increasingly worse in Indigenous communities, particularly in the North, where Nunavut sees these rates rise to 57% of households. We're seeing the cost of the most basic items in these places make them unattainable to most. Now, overall, one in three users of food banks are children, and only a fraction of those who need food can access these resources. Now, there's a lot to be said about food banks and charity as a means to end food security. And who better to have that discussion with than Paul Taylor of Food Share Toronto? Our discussion dips into the work of food share, but it dives deeper into, you know, what's causing folks to go without food in a state as wealthy as and as food rich as Canada. And to put it bluntly, it's capitalism. Capitalism is the problem. I mean, we get far more nuanced than that. But in the end, this isn't about the availability of food. It's about the lack of income. And the affordable means of living, which is why attempts to feed our neighbors alone will never solve the problem. Many arguing that that approach without addressing systemic issues of inequality may actually perpetuate the problem. And now there are countless reasons why I asked Paul Taylor in particular to come on Blueprints to discuss food insecurity, but mostly because Paul challenges the narrative in almost every conversation that he has. And his work is just so multifaceted, and and all of it has been aimed at dismantling these awful systems that would have us go hungry and unhoused at a time when profits are at record highs. Now let's hear more about Paul, his work, and his vision from him. Welcome. I have a feeling a lot of the audience here is going to be familiar with my next guest, but Paul, can you introduce yourself to folks and, and tell us a little bit about yourself? For sure. But first, I have to say how excited and delighted I am to, to be here. So thanks so much for having me, Jessa. Um, I'm Paul Taylor. I um, wear a few hats, one of which is as the executive director of an organization called Food Share Toronto. I also do a little bit of teaching. I teach at Simon Fraser University, and I uh, recently launched a business, uh, a consulting business called Evenings and Weekends Consulting. And I guess you can imagine why we gave it that name. That's likely the only time you have to do any extra stuff. Um, that is quite a workload, friend. You know, I think uh, it's funny because I thought this was going to be impossible. Um, but really, it's just another way to do the work that I love. You know, I feel like, you know, in some ways we're kind of restricted in, in the charitable sector in terms of what we can and can't do. Um, so it was, it's really exciting to me to be able to support a bunch of other organizations um, as they try to center equity and justice and rethink their approach to their work. Um, so that's really, I find it really energizing. 
And we have a great team. I have the good fortune of working with great teams uh, everywhere. So, um, you know, that uh, always makes a leader look great. I have to I have to give kudos to my amazing teams that I work with uh, in all the spaces. It also makes the work a lot easier uh, when you're amongst friends and, and good co-workers. So that's that's good to hear. Now, food chair. Um, we'll get into like the difference between food chair and a food bank later on. But just, you know, briefly, what is food share? I sometimes think it depends on, on who you ask and uh, probably depends on when you ask me as well what I think food share is. But I think these days, you know, the way I've been thinking about the organization is certainly we are a food justice organization. And I think, you know, I've, I've finally come to this. I think we've got a threefold approach to our work. Uh, the first thing that we do is we support access to fresh produce um, through some of our social enterprise activity, like the Good Food Box. Um, we also work with communities that have been underinvested in uh, to build community-led food infrastructure. So we help uh, communities build things like um, a produce markets, urban farms, that sort of thing, community-led, community-run food infrastructure. And then also we really seize opportunities for public education on, on the issue of food insecurity itself, recognizing that it's, it's sometimes poorly understood or misunderstood, and then um, to advocate, you know, often uh, helping people realize that food insecurity isn't really a food issue at all, but it's largely an income issue, that people don't have enough uh, income to access the food that they need. So a lot of our work is also about recognize, helping people recognize the opportunities for income-based interventions to challenge food insecurity. That's all-encompassing work. Um, normally, when people think of organizations fighting food insecurity, they think of simply just collecting as much food and handing it out. You know, sometimes it's a food bank. Sometimes it's getting, you know, leftovers and, and giving that out. Uh, this is something completely different. And you say it's to address um, the issue of food scarcity. How big of an issue is that in Canada? We grow a lot of food here, Paul, right? We, I, I'm in not northern Ontario, but I'm about an hour north of the city of Toronto. And farms, 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 farms everywhere. Uh, I, I have no problem finding food here. Obviously, I have the income to do it, but, and we are a wealthy country. Why, you know, I was looking up some stats here and it was scary. One in six kids in Canada, you know, experiences food insecurity. What's going on, Paul? Like, how, how can you kind of give us a picture on how bad it is? And, you know, without having to explain it all, like, why is that happening in a country like Canada? Well, I, I would say, you know, first in response to how serious and how grave the situation is, it's pretty grave. It's a crisis. You know, there are there was a report that came out recently from the folks at Proof out of the University of Toronto that points to the fact that 5.8 million Canadians are experiencing food insecurity. When you when you connect that to when you think about that in relation to the population of this country, you know, that that is astounding and really, really worrisome. So, and this isn't a new story. This has been going on for a really long time. And I think part of the problem, or maybe I'm going to jump around a little bit, but I want to go back to, you know, what you were mentioning about food and there being food everywhere. I think the first thing for folks to understand about food insecurity is that in this country, across this land, there is more than enough food here to feed all of its inhabitants. You know, so I think that's where we've got to start our, our thinking. And the other place we've got to start some of our thinking is recognizing that in addition to there being enough food in this country, we all have a right to food. 
you know, since it was introduced in 1966 in Canada, ratified in 1976, which actually says that, which, which, which places the responsibility on our governments to ensure that everybody could access the food that they need. So food insecurity, in my mind, is not something that is an issue of not enough food and certainly not an issue of not enough craft dinner or tins of tuna or what have you. It's an issue of public policy failure. And I worry, you know, in the early 80s when people were starting to, communities were starting to come together to think about what they can do to respond to that moral imperative to feed their hungry neighbor, you know, we saw the advent of things like food banks. And and I'm concerned now because I think folks are beginning to understand, yes, that food banks are very limited in the, 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 the impact that they can have and also that the quality of food is not always the greatest. But what concerns me right now is the, is the conversations that we're having about food waste um, and the, the idea that low-income people or people who are, yeah, low-income people are in essence walking compost bins is absolutely absurd and does nothing to advance the right to food. So this, these, these ideas that people are really running with, these you know, um, redistributing food waste schemes, while sure they're important uh, in terms of reducing our, our, uh, our emissions, and, and I think we need to have that lens as, as we do this, that work, but none of that is going to solve. I keep telling people that ugly potatoes, uh, three-legged carrots, um, you know, other, any form of other people's food waste is not going to solve food insecurity. And we really need to have a razor-sharp focus on the public policies that, that actually can. It's that, like, viewing food as a charity rather than the human right, you know, you, you asserted that it is and, you know, that we have declared that it is. And yeah, indeed, that is a slippery slope when we start to just depend on food banks. Do you think food banks should exist? Um, Or do they, you know, let governments off the hook? Do they create not, they almost normalize the fact that other struggling community members need to provide the food versus the onus you just you describe being on the government? They do. They do. And I would say, you know, that is a really good question and a tricky one. You know, I'm going to answer that in a few ways. Uh, One, I will say that, you know, people have been forced to depend on food banks. They have been forced to depend on other forms of mutual aid and community care outside of the charitable sector um, because of a lack of public policy. So, you know, I think it's, it's really tough because people are accessing, you know, a percentage of food insecure people are accessing these, these supports. In fact, um, you know, there, there's some data out there that suggests that only 25% of food insecure people actually access charity. Be that as it may, there are still people that are accessing that, that food. And that's a complicated, a complicated question, one that I wrestle with. But with that said, I, I, my thinking has evolved, I think, or has changed. And that I think there is a role for food banks, and I think there will always be a role potentially for food banks. But we're talking, uh, when, I, when I say that, I'm talking about food emergencies, you know, when someone's house burns down and when somebody uh, uh, has had a really grave situation where they, they, they need to access support in a temporary, in a temporary way, the challenge is that, we, that that's not what's happening. People have uh, been forced to, as a part of their regular journey to access food, line up uh, for other people's leftovers or corporate food waste or other forms of charitable food, salty soup, stale bread, 
Um, you know, and that's become part of people's regular uh, process to access the food that they need. So I think we have to challenge the regularization of, of um, charitable food um, and really be demanding that governments are using the levers available to them. You know, I, I, I've said this a few times, but I get so infuriated every time I see a photo of a politician sorting tins at a food bank. I start yelling at my phone if it's Instagram or yelling at uh, the TV if it's on the news. You know, I don't understand. They need to put down the tins and they need to start sorting the public policy instead because there are public policies. There are things that are very clear that will have a marked impact on food insecurity that they seem to be uh, not, not leaning into in the way that they should. I'm going to ask you, you know, what kind of policy items? Because it seems like a very um, difficult issue to solve you know it just it's that goes that deep when you're talking about system change it it, that also seems very um insurmountable but just to your point on the food tins and conservative photo ops i just just a quick story uh carolyn mulrooney in my community she is our mpp and um we have a food bank and every year she is the host almost of their biggest fundraiser her children dance and it almost entirely revolves around her and to me that does such a disservice because then everyone in the room is just seems blissfully unaware that it's their policies that are creating such a huge need for them to be coughing up that money for the food bank and I'm like you Paul I you know I obviously cannot go to that event it makes me really angry I get really upset seeing the photo ops show up on our local paper. And, um, you know, it leads to like people voting against their best interests. But what really can folks, you know, you got a lot of municipal politicians running right now. Um, We're kind of between any hope provincially and and federally right now. But what can folks in government be doing policy wise to address food security? Obviously, they've been supplied with a lot of information. You, you've not been silent. There's tons of groups out there that have told them, what do they need to do and what is stopping them, more importantly? It's too easy to do what they're doing. What does it take 15 minutes to go to a food bank and sort some tins and take some photos? Um, you know, that, that costs nothing. That um, is too easy. And the, the shameful part, I have to say, is that we buy into it. We say, oh, isn't that nice? Carolyn Mulrooney, she's out doing all this stuff for people that are hungry in our community. You know, I was once interviewed by her brother, Ben Mulrooney, and, you know, he was asking me about, you know, I'm very open about my personal experiences, my lived experience of poverty and food insecurity. And he asked me about what that was like. And I said, well, certainly it was pretty shitty. You know, you can imagine it wasn't great. But uh, I'm reminded that it was a conservative premier um, in Ontario that slashed uh, welfare when I was growing up. And that had a huge impact on my family. He wasn't prepared to, answer, to respond to that question. I don't think he, he, he didn't, he, or that comment, he didn't imagine that I would take the conversation in that direction. But I think that is the important piece. We have allowed this issue, this fundamental human right to be depoliticized and, and, and uh, made something that charity must respond to. So when it comes to public policy and the type of public policies that I think are really important in combating food insecurity, y- you know, the, it's really actually quite simple, I think. 
Um, and I and I get some of these answers from from my lived experience and from simply talking to people that are currently food insecure, because they'll tell you what they're spending their money on and what's too expensive. And any smart politician would then say, okay, we've got to make a plan to make these things more affordable. But even before that, you know, I'm sometimes reluctant to jump on any bandwagon around a specific policy. Because as you said at the beginning of our conversation, we live in one of the richest countries in the world. I don't think we should start with a policy. I think we should start with what it means to live in one of the richest countries in the world and what we should expect living on this land. And I think we should expect uh, not just to be able to survive, but but be able to thrive and have a decent quality of life. So for me, that must be the framework for a public policy, not just a public policy in isolation, because there are lots of other factors that can affect the efficacy of that public policy, you know, really what we need is a framework for a decent quality of life. Now, to drill down further, you know, of course, that would include income interventions. We see something like close to 60% of people that are food insecure in Ontario are uh, people who derive their income, the primary source of income, from employment. So that means that um, the wages that they're receiving, is, they're too low. And Carolyn Mulroney and her, her comrades, you know, they have an opportunity to actually increase minimum wage and make it so that, um, you know, those folks that are working are not forced to experience legislated poverty. So I think certainly that's something that needs to be addressed. Wages should be livable. Uh, uh, that's it. And, and when I say wages, I mean wages from employment. I mean wages from social assistance, wages from any type of, uh, any type of wages. I could go on. Sorry, <laughs> I could go on. Maybe I'll just share one thing, if I may, in terms of policy that I think is really important. Um, we see the impact of uh, a universal basic income, actually, in this country already. Uh, so I'm actually not someone that says we need another pilot. I think they're delay tactics. I think we need a universal basic income as one of the things to address uh, inc- uh, uh, the kinds of food insecurity that we see. Seniors, low-income seniors... or low-income people, as soon as they hit retirement age, we actually see a 50% decrease in food insecurity. And people are, you know, stunned to hear that. And the reason that that happens is because they then have access to old age security and the guaranteed income supplement, in essence, a basic income. We see a huge decrease. So these tools are available. We know that we can combat food insecurity um, uh, with income-based interventions. But I, I would also be remiss to say, you know, when I talk about uh, the 5.8 million people that are food insecure, there are people that I am so incredibly worried about right now. I, you know, I'd hate to just use a big number like this, but there are people that are, um, you know, that are experiencing severe food insecurity and are now navigating the inflationary pressures uh, that, that we're all experiencing. And I am really worried for those folks, and I'm really worried for the difficult decisions that folks are, are being forced to make. So it's a crisis, and we need our, our elected officials to step up. I mean, yeah, just this morning, again, we were reminded, well, at least on my Twitter feed, of the exorbitant prices in northern Ontario and the territories. I mean, you this wasn't groceries, but it's just the number that was stuck in my head. It was $79 for a box of Tide, $8 for some salad dressing, almost $6 for a little can of corn niblets. And this was in Northern Ontario here. So, um, you know, that's not even inflation. That is just complete 
exploitation of, you know, the supply and demand. But um, I'd be remiss to not mention when you said legislated poverty there, the thing that came to my mind immediately was uh, recipients of uh, disability benefits and uh, Ontario Works here. Those folks, I saw a tweet this morning uh, from somebody who relies on that and they were, you know, obviously upset and, and their tweet was, you know, basically fuck food banks take that money and give it to people on ODSP so that we can buy our own groceries. I'm tired of getting expired cans of food and it's not the only thing that I need because I'm living in poverty. Uh, And so, you know, the the funds that you're directing there even could be better spent in feeding people rather than that, that food bank model. But I just, yeah, I had to bring that up because, uh, that's another big source, you know, is that of legislated poverty there. Uh, also, you mentioned the the proof. I also went through that before we we talked the the proof report. Incredible source of information that I'll be sure to link to the episode, folks, because it really kind of lays it out. Another, I, I want you to comment on this too. Um, one in four people experiencing food insecurity are renters, versus less than eight percent of homeowners. <laughs> So that's 25% versus less than 8%. So housing, um, I don't know why this surprised me. You know, just renting can be a precarious way of of even housing oneself in this market. Um, so, but it did, it, it did, it could, because the difference was so stark. So I guess it's one of the solutions also addressing housing. Um, or Without a doubt. You know, when I said you just have to talk to people who are experiencing food insecurity, actually, first I need to say, you know, in relation to your comment about uh, the tweet that you saw, you know, I think they they put it actually brilliantly. So I'm just going to say retweet to that. Um, But, uh, you know, going back to um, uh, uh, the interventions in housing, you know, it's clear, you know, if if we want to have a decent quality of life, we need to have safe and affordable housing. And, you know, when I hear political parties promising to build some number that sounds nice amount of housing, or I don't even know if it sounds nice, because it's not tied to the actual need. You know, this sounds ludicrous to me. I I always wonder who's doing the math on these things. You know, we know what the need is for affordable housing. You know, and and I feel like these are folks that are like, we've got to stop this, you know, political gamesmanship around let's just one up the other per, the other party or the other person because people are struggling a lot and they need housing. So certainly housing, we hear about things like um, pharmacare is, is, is really needed. People need access to their medicine. People are cutting it in half to make it to make it stretch a little bit longer. You know, people are pay, are using chunks of their money for transit to get to work. You know, there are so many things that are like low-hanging fruit that could be done to, to put poverty and food insecurity in our history books. There's one thing that I think, um, you know, based on what you were saying earlier, I just want to talk about two, two things that I think are really important, especially around ODSP and welfare uh, recipients, because those are, are folks who are feeling an incredible amount of pressure in addition to insult uh, when you think about the CERB and the amount of money that was made available to, to folks uh, uh, through CERB, there is a really interesting variance in between food insecurity levels in places like Ontario and Quebec. Quebec is actually has one of the lowest rates of food insecurity in the country, and it's because they are indexing some of these social entitlements to inflation. 
That's, again, an easy thing to do. Um, but our governments seem not to be willing to prioritize that, talk about that. You know, I wish Quebec was really talking about the success that they're having as a result of, of indexing uh, these entitlements to inflation. So I think that's really important. The other thing I'll, talk about, I'll say that I think doesn't get addressed enough is the distrust of the poor. People are fine. People feel comfortable giving their... Um, their donations, their whether it's food or money, to a, a food bank or a food charity run by a middle-class white person more typically um, because there, there, there is a distrust, I, I would say it's distrust of the poor and, and racism often, you know, but when it comes to the people in front of us who are experiencing food insecurity, um, who are disproportionately racialized, there is an unwillingness to, to a, a help foster the kind of society that would support folks. I sometimes wonder why is it so easy in the scan, some of the Scandinavian countries, and then I find myself reflecting on the fact that there's much more similarity in some of those countries. So I think the, uh, the distrust of the poor and racism are really key, key elements to these conversations and figuring out how we need to move past the type of race-based inequity that we see and the type of income inequality that we see. That's a great point that you make, and I think a lot of people can perhaps see it in the example of you see someone on the street, perhaps with a sign asking for money, and your alternative is to go into the restaurant behind them, buy them food and give it to them rather than the money they were asking for. And quite often is they'll spend it on drugs. And, you know, so like we that that kind of narrative is definitely prevalent. Right. So um, I can see that playing out into people's solutions, like broader solutions, right? Their own personal solution is not to just give you cash because I don't know what you're going to spend it on. And then the same goes, you know, I'll give it to a food bank, a respectable food bank. Um, but basic income totally seems true. like far-fetched to them. The way we're forcing people to live, you know, I, I would be reaching for every drug imaginable. Uh, to try and have some sort of escape from the daily task of trying to uh, nourish myself uh, with all of these barriers. I would also say, you know, to those people, I get a lot of people that say to me, you know, oh, we don't want to, you know, if we increase welfare or this sort of thing, people are just going to spend it on X. And I say to them, well, you know what we should do? When you get your paycheck, we're going to say, you can't spend it on this. No liquor store, no whatever it is. You've only got to spend that. That would be ludicrous, you know. But again, it's this distrust of the poor that people aren't able to make the choices that they need to make for themselves. It's just an issue of not having the ability uh, to, to choose. And that it's that meritocracy as well, isn't it, Paul? So not not necessarily what you'll spend the money on, but clearly you don't know how to spend money because you're poor, right? That old narrative and where you'll see organizations providing budgeting classes to low-income people who literally budget their survival every single day. They could balance a budget better than any CFO out there I can imagine, right? And, and, and understand where the necessities lay and where gravy can actually be cut. Um, so those approaches also really anger me because it's victim-blaming as well, right? Like we know you and I and most of our listeners will likely know why people are poor, right? Most of us are anti-capitalists and and go at that approach where, you know, there's there's root causes to be addressed. An interesting note, though, when you mention Quebec and their numbers, you'll be my 14th episode, I believe, 15th. And I think about 
five or six guests have said, yeah, well, it's much better in Quebec. And I'm a political, you know, and, the, and, and I've had a range of guests on different issues. And, you know, I'm a political science major. And I remember like being taught that Quebec had more socialist roots. And we find that a lot of their solutions, they have way more cooperatives than we do. Uh, they have lower instances of food scarcity you were talking about. And I can't even remember the other ones, but it was just, I, I draw it to that because it's the way that they approach the solution um, as opposed to, you know, food banks or, you know, crikey, minimum wage crawling up at the rate that it did. And, and ODSP rates here in Ontario are just, you know, I did not know they were tied to indexing. So uh, thanks for that. Because that's a huge issue, and I know there's people working to tie minimum wage to the same thing, uh, rather than having to fight every five years for a $3 increase, right, um, at the very least. So we touched on a few, uh, you know, housing, job security, having to pay too much for everything in life. You're going at it through food, though. Like, why food? You know, like you're an activist. That's the first title on your Twitter bio. But why food? Why not housing? Why not, you know, defunding the police so that we could fund different initiatives? Like there's just so many ways we can insert ourselves into this and and attack these oppressive systems. So why this angle? Yeah, I would say... You know, one, I love food. I love to eat. And I saw, you know, growing up in a food insecure household, I saw um, the difference in the household when we when we had enough money to buy some groceries. You know, I would say that that it was it was joyous. It was wonderful. And then it was less so when we had less money for groceries and less food. So that's one of the reasons. But I think the other reason is that food is something that we all engage in. We all eat food. We all come together at some point or another around food. We all understand that we need it. And, And many of us recognize the power of food. We celebrate food. So I find that I am certainly not a food policy guy. In fact, I'm, 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 you know, I shouldn't admit this, but I'm not that interested in lots of food policy, you know, but I use food to have conversations about the other things that are that that I think are, 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 are urgent. Um, and they are around. I, I use it to have conversations about housing, to have conversation about income inequality, um, low wages, all of those sorts of things. Um, health. You know, food kind of brings those things together in in a way that I think is accessible for folks. That kind of easily transitions into, you know, me wanting to ask you more about the community initiatives that you do through Food Share, because you talk about this joy around food and the community building. And that's exactly what you are doing, right? So what does that look like? What do these community food initiatives look like? Um, and just a little uh, background, because you know, for our producer, Santiago, I must be sure to to introduce like the idea of innovation that can happen within communities to grow food closer to home. You know, he was talking about vertical gardens, community gardens, greenhouses in the city, uh, really reshaping our food systems altogether. But let's just focus now for like on these community initiatives that you have through Food Share. I imagine they're in the city of Toronto. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Across the city of Toronto. Um before I do that, I will just highlight, as you can imagine, you know, I always feel the need to say this, but, you know, these things are not a solution to food insecurity. So anyone listening, I don't want them to, um, 
you know, feel or think that, uh, you know, what, what I'm sharing, these are the things that um, folks need to be investing in necessarily and supporting if they are concerned around challenging ultimately food insecurity. But what I do know is, you know, like I said, food is joyous. Food is wonderful. I love to eat. I love to, um, I love to poke around at a farmer's market. But when I poke around at the farmer's market, I don't see a lot of people that look like me. I, uh, I feel like farmer's markets are, are uh, the purview of the palest among us. And, um, you know, so people, it means that racialized folks are, are robbed of the opportunity to connect with farmers in the same way and engage with food in the same way that, um, you know, uh, disproportionately white folks are. So one of the things we're doing is we're recognizing that there are communities that have been chronically underinvested in. These are communities that are disproportionately racialized. And we're saying, let's lend our resources to build some awesome food stuff in your community, despite despite the fact that um, you know uh, they're, they're, they've been chronically underinvested in, um, so we will do things like build affordable produce markets where we engage um, local folks um, who want to be a part of making food available to folks. So. We'll do things like building these, uh, um, helping to create these good food markets. There are, there are about 50 of them across the city of Toronto and various various communities. And it's folks in communities saying, hey, I want to set up a market. I don't want to rely on these, these thieves at, uh, you know, these large corporations and these grocery stores that are extracting as much profit from our communities as they possibly can. I want to go somewhere and be a part of something that is nourishing my community, supporting my community, and creating space for me to connect with others in my community. So that's exactly what these things are. Um, uh, subsidized produce markets, often open air, um, and volunteer run by local folks. Um, and they're just beautiful. And that's one of the things that we do. We also help um, convert underutilized public land. So we school fields that aren't in use or any, uh, you know, hydro corridors. And we work with the local community to convert that land into urban farms. One, so people can grow food, but two, so that they can grow food and sell it locally and have a market once a week um, where folks in that community can, yes, connect with a farmer, learn about the, the, the food that is being grown and actually watch it be grown, you know, so... I just think this, as a result of capitalism and as a result of these extractive corporations that are making record profits right now, um, you know, people are being robbed of the opportunity to really revel in the joy of, of eating and, and all that comes with eating food. So I just think these things are really, these interventions are really beautiful and important, um, but with that, not the solution to food insecurity. I totally get that, but I also, I like... Like when I spoke about cooperatives on another episode, even though some of them are band-aids, the way that they're structured teaches people new ways of connecting and cooperating, you know, folks knowing how to grow their own food, a different way to look at spaces that we've left behind, you know, so that does actually, I think, eat away at the system change you're looking for, maybe not in the most direct route, Um but I feel like reading through food chairs initiatives and, you know, reading your tweets, the way you folks operate as a nonprofit also seems to be working towards a bit of a lead by example, you know, restructure almost how we operate. Right. I see you folks. Um, You pay job applicants, for example, 
that is not like completely unique. I have been paid for one job interview before, <laughs> but um, it is very rare, right? Uh, and not all nonprofits are built equally, right? Certainly not even are all progressive, but Food Chair really does appear to be trying to break the mold. Um, do you have anything else to share? Like I gave one example of paying job applicants, but is that part of your mission at Food Chair as well, to be leaders in the nonprofit sector? Good question. Maybe the first thing I'll say is in relation to the band-aids, you know, um, because that, uh, that, that really uh, resonated with me. And, it, you know, it reminded me that band-aids can be beautiful. You know, I bought a lovely, um, some pink band-aids that I, you know, I actually, I, I quite love putting them on. They're, they're, they, they stand out. I, I, I kind of like them. But despite the fact that they can be beautiful, it doesn't mean that I want to have the sore that requires a band-aid especially when I know there are things that would prevent the sore in the first place. So I do think we can say that, you know, interventions can be beautiful and the band-aids that we use can be beautiful, but the sores less so, especially when we know that there are things to prevent them. Food share, I would say we, we, we are not um, guided by or, or our goal is not to break the mold or to... Um, Innovate. In fact, we, we, we feel that it's so sad that people aren't paid for interviews. You know, we are just trying, recognizing that we live in a system that inflicts all kinds of violence. Oppressive organizing principles like capitalism, patriarchy, ableism, white supremacy, anti-black racism, transphobia, all of those things inform how we think about the world and how we think about the world of work. So I think what we're trying our best to do, which is very difficult because these things are so insidious, is trying our best to disavow ourselves of some of the ways that those oppressive organizing principles have foisted their ways of, you know, foisted ways of being and doing onto us. You know, the fact that when someone comes for an interview and, and they go through all of that process, that they're not compensated for that is actually quite ludicrous. And it's not, you know, we feel like uh, it's not, you know, it, it's like when someone says this is the first black person to lead some organization 125 years and everyone claps. I think how, how embarrassing that it took 125 years, you know. So that's often my, my feeling that it's, it's, it's embarrassing that this isn't happening. You know, it's embarrassing. You know, food share pays benefit. We provide benefits. The moment someone starts working for us. What kind of world are we living in? Where no probation period? No. People get their benefits right away because people need their medicine. What kind of world do we live in where we, we think it's okay to say to someone, don't know what kind of medicine you're on or need, but you're going to wait three months, maybe six, before we'll entertain giving it to you or, or, or allowing you to access it. This is, is, is ludicrous, you know? Foodshare also introduced uh, recently a 7% increase in terms of uh, a uh, uh, cost of living increase because we recognized that um, inflation was taking money out of our colleagues' pockets and, um, you know, uh, it meant that they were getting paid less. That, like, that's real. You know, it's not make-believe. It's not a nice-to-have. It's they were getting paid less. So we, we needed to do more. And a lot of folks will say, well, how do you do this, you know? We have, a, we're, I would say, we're a medium-sized organization. Um, our budget is just under $12 million. There are certainly some that are much larger than us and, and certainly many that are smaller. 
But for us, it's about, I think we can't use that as an excuse. And I do hear some smaller organizations and big ones, uh, bigger than us, saying that, well, we can't do it for this, that, or the other reason. But actually, we have to decide what we, you know, we're making conscious decisions, uh, whether it's taking funding that forces us to pay people less or taking on work and commitments that force us to pay people less. We actually have to say, no, we are not going to grow the impact of our work um, on the backs of a low wage. We're not going to oppress people um, uh, to grow the impact of our work. So these are values questions. And I think it doesn't matter how large or how small we are. We all contend with values questions. And it's about how we respond to those questions. You touched on um, funding, you know. And that's often quite the battle with any progressive organization, especially those, you know, so explicit in wanting systems change. And, you know, the website for Food Share mentions that you have a justice-oriented approach to fundraising. You know, you want to ethically sustain the work that you do. How do you do that? You know, are you vetting donors? You know, what, what does that mean when you say that justice-oriented approach to fundraising? It means, I would say it means a lot of things, but at the risk of, uh, you know, another long-winded answer, I'm going to say, you know, I think it means that we're willing to say no to money. We had Weight Watchers reach out to us and say, we want to give you some money, and uh, maybe it was an award in money, I can't remember. But we, we quite publicly said, no, thank you. Um, b- because of the fat-shaming... Um, kind of stance that Weight Watchers uh, continues to take. We, you know, so I, I think for us, our success is not about how many people we can employ or how big our budget is. It's about our ability to do the work and do it in a way where we can all go to sleep at night. Everyone, you know, uh, uh, is paid an income where they can eat. So. It's about not just trying to scratch together every bit of money and having our funders direct our priorities. You know, a funder might say their priority is this specific thing. Um, And we have to say, well, that's very nice, but that's not our priority. And we're not going to go after those dollars because ultimately we're just setting up a situation where there's going to be some disappointment. So it's about being honest about what we can do with the resources that we have. Um, and not getting seduced by the the dollars. You know, this is all part of capitalism, right? So we we again we have to be really mindful of the way that capitalism has foisted, uh, think has co-opted our thinking, uh, including what success and development looks like. So I think that's one of the ways that we push back. That it's not about how many pennies we have in our bank account, but it's about being able to feel confident in doing the work that we're doing in a way that's ethical and in a way that's honest. And when people hear us saying that the work that we do is not solving food insecurity, they sometimes scratch their heads because they, they are like, well, how can you say that? Do you do food work? Yeah, we do do food work, but we have to be honest about what that work does. And I think this is one of the things that charities are, some charities are not doing, specifically food-based charities. You know, they're making it seem sometimes as if we're solving these issues that we can never solve. We don't have the capacity to solve. Now, if the government wanted us to set, wanted to give us the power to set minimum wage, well, certainly then we could start uh, addressing some of these issues much more meaningfully. But charities just don't have the capacity to do that. And we don't have that expectation of ourselves. The only people we, for whom we have an impact over their food insecurity is those that we pay. And that's why we pay livable wages. 
So does food share do advocacy work? You know, do you lobby the government for better policy or is that is that also do you find that effective? It depends on what government and what their priorities are. But I think, you know, um, it's not just about that government when we might. Yeah, first of all, yes, we do. Um, you know, we um, I remember when uh, the current premier um, uh, rolled back the planned increase to minimum wage. Um, so we wrote an open letter and we challenged him to live on $14 an hour if he thought that that's what uh, uh, was appropriate for Ontarians. Um, so we do engage in advocacy, um, but we often recognize that when we have an obstinate premier or, or government, as is, as is the case currently, that we, we, it's about uh, helping people dream uh, in those situations and helping people remember that something better is possible. Um, and that, um, you know, what, what our government might not be doing or is not the be-all and the end-all. So, so, you know, it sometimes takes a bit of a different approach, and it's about public education and saying, hey, let's not give up. Let's recognize that better is possible, despite, um, you know, how obstinate some of, our, some of our elected officials might be. I like to hear that because myself, you know, I did have a lot tied up in, you know, electoral politics. And I know a lot of people, especially folks on, you know, ODSP who put all of their hope in a better government. So I agree with you that sometimes it's about, you know, creating something completely new and and just and going from from there. Have we seen a bit of a shift then? Like, I know the Toronto Food Bank still exists. You used to be a director, right? I, I was kind of, I thought, right? You Or you were on the, the board uh, for the Toronto Food Bank. And, and the they board, exist. Yeah. And, and and I've got a food bank, a local food bank here, the, the food pantry. Great people work there. But we're also seeing more places like Food Share. So in my neighborhood, we have the York Region Food Network. And they're doing similar work. Have you ever worked with them or have you heard about them? Yeah, you know those folks really well. They're doing excellent work. I did want to say, like, it kind of excites me when I saw that they are also putting even more emphasis on advocacy work and and not in the sense of lobbying, lobbying government. I'm not sure what it looks like for them, but just taking the onus of working at system change, at working at changing the narrative, as well as providing people with ways to, you know, know food better, access food better, um, have a different relationship um, with community food. But are you excited? Like, is there a shift? Is more of this work happening? And and is it making an impact? Yeah, I would say, you know, for for organizations like FoodShare, and perhaps, uh, you know, I shouldn't speak for anybody else, but, um, you know, for organizations like FoodShare, one of the things we recognize, as I was saying, food is sometimes the way that we're connecting with people. But once we've forged that connection, you know, then we can start to build a relationship that helps us support people to advocate for the things that they need. So I think that's critical. Um, But I also would need to say that I'm also seeing food banks shift, some food banks. You know, some are still a bit slow, but I'm seeing some food banks, including the Daily Bread Food Bank, in big ways, really shift and embrace a rights-based perspective and really talk about the types of policy interventions that are required. Um, so that, to me, is, is, is really exciting. I even remember a group called um, Freedom, Freedom, Freedom 90. Oh, my goodness, the best group, one of the best groups I've ever encountered. They were a bunch of food bank volunteers um, 
who were a bit of a play on the Freedom Freedom 55. And they, they said, well, we want to retire from volunteering at the food bank by the time we're 90. As you can imagine, a few of them were, were, were seniors. Um, but, you know, this is the kind of discourse that I think is much needed. You know, this is the, this issue, poverty, food insecurity, political issues. And charities have, I would say, if they have an allegiance to low-income people and people experiencing food insecurity, they need to help ensure that it remains a political issue and that we're doing all that we can to mobilize people around putting pressure on those that are elected to make the kinds of decisions that have huge impacts on people's lives. I'm excited to hear that, you know, even the more traditional food banks are getting politicized, um, because that's half the battle, isn't it, Paul? Like making people realize there's a fight to be had, not even that it's winnable. Some people are oblivious to the effects of capitalism and and, and their responsibility there. Um, so that excites me. And, you know, <laughs> you're very modest, but I think you are playing a very key role. You are very, we hear from you a lot, like you are out there. You're speaking in such accessible language that is laying it bare to understand, you know, what food insecurity looks like, but also what it looks like to fight it. So I hope you continue to kind of see that shift and, you know, have more networks of these coalitions come together, um, because that is that is quite exciting to hear, especially with our earlier critiques of food banks. So we will we get we'll, we'll go easy on them let them grow a little bit, right? But what's getting you excited, Paul? Like, what what's success look like for food share? Do you want to, like, let's, let's, we're getting near the end of our conversation, and I like to kind of leave it hopeful for folks. So I want to know what Paul Taylor has been excited about recently. Well, you know, I, um, an early lesson, when my, when my mother first found out that I was an executive director, her first question was, what is that and what do they do? Are they people who are doing work work or are they sitting at, you know, any, in any event? I, I explained what my job was and that it was a leadership role. And my mother said, oh, you know, something really important that's always stuck with me. She said, you know, people always say it's lonely at the top, but it's only lonely at the top if you don't take other people with you. So what excites me is, you know, the, the um, uh, badass young folks that are not willing to accept the confines of charity, that are not willing to um, uh, play nice for the sake of capitalism and white supremacy uh, and patriarchy, you know, and all of those things. That's what really excites me. You know, I think about the baton that I've been passed and I try and, you know, uh, I've tried to as run as, as far as I can and as fast as I can with it, with a lot of people uh, holding that baton with me. But what excites me is at some point, you know, this baton will get passed off to other folks who are amazing and who have a really clear analysis. Even in the pandemic, you know, unlike in the early 80s when we saw a response to food insecurity uh, and the recession at that point, we saw people coming together during the pandemic and some of the mutual aid work, um, you know, was really grounded in rights and a recognition that policy was failing us. So that excites me because it means that... um, you know, we're chomping at the, we're chomping at the, we're, we're, I don't know what the term is, but we're, we are, there is a growing number of us who are demanding change, who are working for change, and will not give up until we see the change that, that, that we need. That's a 
doesn't excite folks that are listening, then you are listening to the wrong podcast. Because, you know, that's essentially what we're hoping to get from every guest is that little bit of extra fire under you folks, some extra tools to know, you know, how it's done, why it's done that way. And uh, most importantly, to have hope that, you know, everyone here involved um, can make an impact. Maybe it's not with a food share type organization, but, you know, something, right? Something. And I love to hear you talk about bringing people along with you. That's the organizer in you. That's what real organizing is. is it's complete empowerment of every single person person you come in touch with, except capitalists. And and to do your best with the roles that you have, right? So what an incredible guest for me to get. Honestly, Paul, I know you didn't like me gushing over you when we first logged on, but I really, I really do think that it's a well-deserved leadership role and it's taken you so far as well in turn into like a, a voice for something different in terms of making sure our community members have food, have food. Um, so such a basic need, you know, we talk about shelter, we talk about healthcare and we, how are we going to protect that? And food, people are starving and, um, Anything we can do to eat away at that, honestly, is 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 needed. But what a huge job you have at hand, and I'm glad it's you at the helm. And um, I do appreciate all the work that you're doing, Paul, and coming on here and explaining it all to me, and and getting me excited about it too. Oh, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm going to do something that maybe um, doesn't happen. I'm going to turn the, the lens back on you. And I have to say, I see your Twitter. I have been a fan for a long time. You know, and just so pleased, you know, the, the opportunity to speak with you is such an honor because you're doing what, what needs to happen. You know, you are speaking truth to power. You're pushing in ways that are really sincere and important. And that's what we need. We all need to be doing more of. So I'm so honored to be here with you and really appreciate the, the invitation to spend some time today. So thank you. Thank you very much, Paul. That, that really did mean a lot. If folks could help you, right? If we can make a million more Paul Taylors, we can. You know, someone smashed the mold there. But um, if they could help you, if they could help food share, uh, what could they do? What should they be doing? They could help us in challenging this this narrative that charity is a solution. You know, I'm not going to make a pitch for donations or any such sort of thing. You know, what I what what people can help us to do is to help us talk to their neighbors. You know, some I think some stat holidays coming up. Talk to your neighbors over the in your family over over a meal. Tell them that donating your leftover cranberry sauce is not the solution and that collectively we need to all be doing more. And certainly, as I'll keep saying until I, until I can't say it anymore, we need to collectively be demanding our politicians do more than they are. That is a great message. So in other words, disrupt the status quo, right? Which is kind of like one of our taglines. But Paul, that's not just any stat holiday, comrade. We've got Labor Day, so you enjoy that, that you're not supposed to work on Labor Day, Paul. Yeah. Yeah. So keep that in mind, friend, because you are very hardworking. Um, I hope you know what self-care is, friend, because I want to keep seeing you smile, and I need to hear that voice out there. So thank you so much for joining us. So you see what I mean? Paul is always challenging that narrative. We talked a lot, and I learned a lot. 
a lot of our focus was, rightly so, on income inequality and the cost of living. They play huge parts in food insecurity in Canada. But I want to make note that capitalism has also failed us in the way our food systems are designed. You know, during a time of crisis, especially during the earlier days of COVID, we were met with images of farmers destroying crops to address issues of demand. We saw empty shelves in the grocery store. More recently, we're witnessing a shortage of infant formula. It wasn't all that long ago I was a new mom during COVID, and the failure of the supply chains in general, paired with the private monopolies that exist on essential items like baby food, added this whole other level of anxiety and crisis in an already trying times. Capitalism will continue to fail us. It will continue to demonstrate just how it was designed to create massive inequality. So I'm thankful to see organizations like FoodShare combine the effort to feed the community with advocacy that challenges capitalism and all the other oppressive systems that exist to maintain it. So thank you again to Paul Taylor, to FoodShare Toronto, and for all the great folks doing that kind of work out there. Like in all things that we do, there's a team behind Blueprints of Disruption. I want to give a big thank you to our producers, Santiago, Hello Quintero, and Jay Woodruff. Our show is also made possible by the support of our listeners. So if you appreciate our content and would like to become a patron, please visit us at www.patreon.com backslash BP of disruption. So if you know of any work that should be amplified or want to provide feedback of our show, please reach out to us on Twitter at BP of disruption. Blueprints of Disruption is a project of New Left Media, an independent employee-owned company.